conversion at the beginning of the chapter in verses 3 to 7. Then he speaks of his justification or his being made right with God. Uh, We see that more in verses 8 through 10. Then he speaks of his sanctification or his uh, being made holy like God in verses 11 uh, to 19. And in our passage today, uh, he'll um, take up this idea of sanctification, but then he'll conclude by speaking to the believer's glorification. And we'll explain what that means a little bit later in the sermon. So let's look together at Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we know that we are weak, but you are strong, and so we ask for your help. For by your grace, you have chosen to save some and to make those who trust in Jesus citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that you, by this text, by this sermon, would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our citizenship. And that, Lord, for those who are here and who have not placed their faith in Christ, we're thankful that they're here with us. We so appreciate them uh, being here. And Lord, we pray that one of the things that you would do for them is to work through this text to show them the need that they have for a Savior and the wonder of the Savior that we worship and belong to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's uh, good copying and bad copying. Uh, Every parent of small children in particular knows this. Good copying, you overhear your kids praying. Or you uh, overhear your kids uh, consoling their brother uh, or or sister. Uh, Or you uh, hear them uh, mimicking back something that they've uh, learned in school. There's bad copying. You get caught copying the work of someone else on a test. Not good. Uh, Or uh, you hear your kids say something and you're like, I'm not sure where they learned how to speak like that. And then there's uh, all sorts of other copying. There's thoughtless copying. There's cute copying. But our passage this morning makes a distinction between good copying and bad copying. And it does this by drawing our attention to two models which were before the Philippian church. Those who walked as enemies of the cross of Christ and those who walked as citizens of heaven. And so to help you uh, follow along with our study this morning, I'm going to provide you with the main idea right here up front, and it's this, that Christians, as citizens of heaven, should keep their eyes fixed on godly examples who God will use to help us live as the citizens of heaven that we are. Those who have found salvation in Jesus, Paul says, should copy carefully so that we can live our lives according to our true identity as heavenly citizens. 
And our outline is going to be simple. We're going to look at the command to imitate godly models and then at the two ways uh, that we could possibly follow that Paul fleshes out in verses 18 to 21. So in verses 12 to 16, Paul has modeled for the Philippians what mature uh, Christian thinking and living should look like. The mature Christian is someone who is engaged in the relentless pursuit of knowing more of Christ and knowing more of Christ's uh, transforming power at work in their lives. The mature, uh, they long to know more and more of Jesus' power at work in them to make them look more and more like Him. And this morning, as we get to verse 17, our text begins with a command from the Apostle. Brothers, join in imitating me. With these words, Paul is calling the whole church at Philippi to make a point of copying the convictions, the life, the outlook which Paul has modeled for them. Paul wants the whole church to not only mimic uh, what Paul has, has taught or what Paul has said, but to mimic how he lives. Now, from what Paul has already said in this letter, we can understand more precisely what he means here. Uh, Paul wants the Philippians to copy his Christ-like a selfless service to others, as we saw him talk about in chapter 2. And he wants them to imitate those who forsake any reason for, for confidence in our own ability to fix our sin problem with God. He wants uh, them to, to copy uh, him as he trusts in Jesus alone for the righteousness that comes from God. And he wants them to mirror those who are always pressing on to know more of Christ's power to make them holy. All these things he's talked about in chapter 3. So Paul wants everyone in the Philippian congregation uh, to follow his example of life. But what would you say if I uh, stood up front here and I said, Harvest, follow me. All right, uh, follow Wayne Veenstra. If I said that, you would say, well, okay, first of all, we know this guy. Uh, but secondly, that's sort of an arrogant uh, thing to say. Why should we follow him? I know I'm not the Apostle uh, Paul, but maybe you would react uh, to me saying that. Uh, you would uh, you'd sort of react to Paul in a, a similar sort of way. Because it doesn't strike you as humble for the Apostle Paul to say such things. And so maybe it's just a little off-putting for you. But this isn't pride on Paul's part. He's admitted that he's not perfect. He's acknowledged uh, his great need that he too is pressing on to know more of Christ's transforming power. His, his posture is not that of the proud or the puffed up, but as we've seen in verses 12 to 16, uh, he's like a runner striving uh, to pursue more of Jesus and his holiness. But what's more, Paul is not trying to have the spotlight all on himself. Notice how he adds, and watch those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's not concerned just about stoking his own personal uh, vanity, but he's, he's trying to promote a particular way of living. And so for this reason, he commands them not only to follow him, but to pay close attention to any and to all who walk according to the apostolic example. Now, Paul's call to imitation shouldn't surprise us. You might remember when we looked in chapter 2 that Paul made ready uh, uh, use of the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. These were men who reflected Christ, our example par excellence. 
So God provides, we said uh, when we looked at those passages, he provides godly examples. And this is, is an important way that God moves his people toward greater faithfulness and greater holiness. Now, while the Bible is God's primary means of doing this work, seeing concrete, everyday, lived-out applications of the Bible is an important part of God's plan to prepare his people for glory. But our text this morning leads us to see another reason why copying carefully matters. And that's because imitation is inevitable and who we follow is consequential. Paul's logic in the passage is that who we follow matters because we have two guides who will lead us in two vastly different directions. He says, follow me and follow those like me because there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, but our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. It matters who we follow because of this stark contrast. There are two ways to live, and the differences between these two ways are so great that if you follow the wrong one, it might have devastating and catastrophic implications. Let me share with you an embarrassing story that might help illustrate this principle for you. When I was a teenager, there was a time uh, where some friends and I got lost while we were uh, driving in a new place. It was uh, late at night. Uh, we had no map. Uh, this was before we had smartphones. Uh, it was dark. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere and not knowing uh, where sh we should go. Uh, one of us decided that we should just follow the next car that came our way and that might lead us to civilization. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it was. Instead, we nearly ran out of gas and ended up driving uh, uh, around the entire perimeter uh, of the city and we got progressively more and more lost. Now, this illustration is harmless except to uh, my pride, uh, but it shows that we need to be careful to follow carefully. And so we should look more closely at the two ways to live, the two guides that we might follow that Paul contrasts in our passage. So first, let's look at those who Paul speaks of as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who were these people? Well, commentators have uh, suggested uh, different possibilities. Some have asked, well, were these pagans, those outside the church? Were they Judaizers? Paul had spoken strongly against the Judaizers at the beginning of our chapter, so that's uh, possible. But the explanation that seems most likely to me is that these were um, professing Christians. These were people who called themselves Christians, but they were undermining their profession through the way they lived their lives. This would have been a, a subtler and far more dangerous threat than blatant paganism. The Philippians uh, would have been more likely to know we shouldn't follow those people uh, outside the church out there, but since these people uh, likely associated with Christ in some sort of way, there was a greater danger of threat. It's possible that these people introduced themselves to the Philippian church, advertising themselves, uh, themselves as friends of the cross, when in reality, we'll see, they were quite the opposite. And speaking of these enemies of the cross, as Paul had before, he says, he's provoked to tears. Because here were people who were misrepresenting the glorious gospel of Christ and who by their example, they would threaten to turn others uh, uh, down the path to ruin. 
So let's look closer, though, at what Paul says about this group. Paul speaks about their destiny, their deity or their God, their glory and their focus. What's their destiny? Paul says their end is destruction. The Bible teaches that because of human sin, your sin, my sin, we are naturally deserving of God's judgment and that those who remain in their sin shall be condemned forever. The wages of sin is an ongoing and forever judgment or what the Bible identifies as hell. Now this sentence should strike us hard as it did for Paul because this is a prognosis of enduring unquenchable fire, of spiritual rot and decay and death, of cursedness, not blessedness, of darkness, not light, of a never-ending restlessness of soul, of an uncrossable chasm between the condemned and the happy presence of God. Now, I recognize that you may be here this morning and you might find this teaching unbelievable or stronger yet reprehensible. And it's not my purpose uh, this morning uh, to give a defense of this teaching, except to say that it's the teaching of the Old Testament, it's the teaching of Jesus, and it's the teaching of the apostles. It's the teaching of the Apostle Paul here. And so if you want to study more on what the Bible says on this topic, I can direct you to a few resources, Hell on Trial or Hell Under Fire by Robert Peterson would be two places uh, that you might want to go. But for our purposes today, we need to understand that this passage says plainly that these enemies of the cross are headed for eternal destruction. That there are some who are proudly marching their way to a terrible fate. And that should be enough to warn us that it matters who we follow. Because unlike my foolish escapades on the outskirts of the city of Hamilton, who we follow may have eternal consequences. Now if we ask why they are enemies of the cross and why there is such a severe destiny that awaits them, I think the next clause begins to provide us with some explanation. Their God is their belly. Now the term translated belly in our text is not um, limited to referring to one's stomach, uh, but it's uh, used to speak also of a woman's womb or even more broadly the desires of the heart. So it's possible that Paul here is speaking of people who aren't just um, governed by dietary appetites, but by sexual appetites and by other self-serving desires of the heart. They're dominated by appetites in such a way that these appetites, these desires, these cravings that they have are functional gods. Now it's worth mentioning that every man and woman has some governing person or some governing principle in their life. We all have got a, a purpose of being which all the other actions and desires of our life are subservient to. We all have something that is, is chief among our desires, the Lord of our life, the master that we serve. In this sense, we all have gods. There are gods of self and stuff and sex, of popularity, of power, of wealth, and many more. And so Paul, in this text, he issues this tearful warning to the Philippians of those who claim the name of Christ, but they are worshiping their appetites. Maybe they were gorging themselves on food or 
getting drunk or delighting in illicit sexual pleasures. Perhaps they were accumulating for themselves all sorts of stuff because they wanted it. Never demonstrating any sort of self-sacrificial denial. They're people who abused the gospel of grace. They were misrepresenting the cross uh, of Christ. They, They didn't see how the appearance of grace trains us, as Paul says in his letter to Titus, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And these enemies, they worship their appetites and they glory in their shame. In our culture, we struggle with the concept of shame. We're sometimes tempted to think that all shame is bad shame. Now granted, there's a shame that comes upon us when we are are, uh, victimized or abused or subject to the violence of others. Uh, There's such a thing as misplaced shame. But sometimes, however, shame is the right response to sin. When we do something wrong, we should feel ashamed. Just as the pain sensors in our body alert us when we've incurred some sort of uh, physical harm, in the same way, shame rightly experienced should alert us to the spiritual harm we've sustained when we've sinned. And just like the pain sensors in our body, when they're working rightly, uh, when we feel pain, that'll cause us to uh, back away or to pull away from whatever is hurting us, shame, where grace is at work, will cause us to pull away from sin and to turn to the Savior. We're in serious spiritual danger when we've lost our ability to be ashamed of sin. We're no longer bothered by vulgar or profane speech or by lying or bending the truth or whatever it might be. But these enemies of the cross, not only is it that they feel no shame, but now they've come to revel in what's shameful. What once may have caused them to hide certain things or to lower their voice, speak in hushed tones, they now openly flaunt. They're glory inverters. They glory in what's shameful. Their sinful indulgences, whether it was sexual immorality or lewd behavior or gluttony or drunkenness, are what they now delight in. They're people that, that uh, uh, post uh, uh, these shameful things uh, to their photos and share the videos in their TikTok. They broadcast their shame. They're, pre- they're pleased by their exploits. They boast in their conquests. And when Paul sums up these enemies of the cross, he does so in verse 19. They're people whose minds are set on earthly things. Now he's using earthly here in the same sense he uses it in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, Paul speaks of earthly as referring to uh, the whole range of sinful behaviors in which, uh, uh, where we live our lives in sinful rebellion against God. So Colossians 3 gives us some samples of what earthly-mindedness looks like. It's uh, sexual immorality, it's impurity, it's obscene talk. But it's also a way of speaking and acting that oftentimes we excuse. But they're ways of living that show that we're living as if there's no God. They're sins like sinful anger or lying, slander, covetousness. Earthly-mindedness is, living, uh, is about living life as if God wasn't a part of the equation. And just as we've looked at these enemies of the cross, suddenly verse 20 interrupts what Paul's saying. Because there's a second way to live. 
There's a second path to walk. There's a second example to follow. This is the way of the one who is trusted in Christ alone. And it's the one that we're called uh, to walk in. It's the way that Paul's walking in. It's the way that we're called to emulate. But our citizenship, and Paul here is referring to himself and the Philippian Christians, and by extension, all those who believe in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Whereas the enemies of the cross, their lives were characterized by an earthly mindedness, the way of the cross reminds us or recognizes that our deepest identity, our deepest sense of belonging is heavenly. Paul makes this point by adopting citizenship language. We've already seen this idea of citizenship in uh, Paul's letter in Philippians 1.27. He speaks of, of living their, uh, their lives in a manner worthy of the citizenship uh, that they have. But now here Paul makes this idea of citizenship explicit. And it's language that would have resonated with the Philippians because Philippi had been made a Roman colony under the reign of Octavian, who was uh, Caesar Augustus. And when he made them a Roman colony, suddenly all the citizens of Philippi, they became citizens of Rome. They received the same rights, the same privileges, and the same protections as those who lived in faraway Rome did. And as citizens of Rome, the Philippians, they lived their lives in light of these privileges and responsibilities of, of this faraway city. So Paul here takes this language that, that would have resonated with the Philippians and he says, in a similar way, you're to recognize as Christians that you are citizens of a heavenly city and that you should live in ways that accord with the privileges and responsibilities of belonging to the city of heaven. As citizens of heaven, Paul says, there's an incredible future which lays ahead because we've got a victorious God. He speaks to both their destiny and their deity. As citizens of heaven, we await the coming of the sin-conquering, death-defeating king. We're awaiting one who is, uh, who's going to be revealed in strength from heaven. He'll be heralded by the trumpet sound, and he'll come to finally destroy the rule of death and sin, and he'll present a kingdom to his God and Father. As citizens of heaven, we await this blessed hope with eagerness. It's not the, the, the waiting of, of hearing back dreaded test results, but this, this waiting that Paul speaks of, it's the eager, can't-contain-it excitement of waiting for Christmas Day, or waiting for the first day of spring, or waiting for the sounds of opening day. It's the creation waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And the children of God waiting for the redemption of our bodies and waiting for the hope of righteousness. It's an eager waiting. First, because of who we as citizens of heaven are waiting for. We wait for the return of God in the flesh. We're waiting for Jesus to come back, Paul says. Now, it's interesting that Paul draws out this full reference to Jesus here a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only place that he does it like this. And I think it's a wonderful poke at the differences or the contrast that he's establishing between the way of the cross and the way of those who are enemies of the cross. Paul has already said that the enemies of the cross, their God is their appetites. But now he rolls out Jesus' business cards, so to speak, as if to say to them, 
I know that you worship uh, hamburgers and hormones, but this is who we worship, okay? We worship Jesus, the Savior, the one who has rescued us by his death and resurrection from sin and from death. And he's the Lord. He's the Almighty God. He's the one who rules over all things. And so in comparison, as he draws out who Jesus is, uh, the paltry, fickle gods of human appetite, they pale in comparison to the God who is worshipped by those who walk the way of the cross. Paul's put forward Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, to emphasize the superiority of the way of the cross. And when Jesus, the Son of God, and the man of heaven, when he returns from heaven, he will transform those who walk in the way of the cross so that we will be truly and undeniably glorious. Again, notice here that Paul is forming a contrast. In verse 19, he spoke of the glory of the enemies of the cross. They find glory in what's shameful. And the same word occurs here in verse 21 a second time to show us the glory that awaits those who walk this second way, the way of the cross. When Jesus comes from heaven, he will transform our lowly bodies. Bodies that are affected by, by sickness and weakness. And he will make them glorious, resurrected bodies. The aches and weaknesses and weariness and, and sickness that, that dogs our bodies now will be gone forever. Whereas now we're reminded that our bodies are slowly or perhaps not so slowly decaying, when he returns, the mortal will put on immortality. But even more glorious is that the sin that badgers us and defiles us now, it will be banished. He says that our lowly bodies will be like Christ's body, which means not only that we'll be immortal, but we'll be immaculate. We'll be spotless, blameless, free of sin. And this is a remarkable thing to consider because the difference between the citizens of heaven and the enemies of the cross is not that the citizens of heaven do not have sinful appetites or desires. Nor are the citizens of heaven, uh, nor is it the case that they never act upon these sinful desires. Sometimes, sadly, we do. And though we're not dominated by our sin, we're still frequently embattled by it. But it will not be so when Jesus returns. We'll be transformed, glorified, made blameless so that we possess a breathtaking moral purity. Christian, the voice of sinful desire in you will be extinguished on that day. The habits that have too often enslaved us and made us miserable will be uprooted once for all. The most shameful parts of us will be made clean, just as Jesus is clean. And while Jesus' personal transformation of us will be glorious, the text tells us that it'll just be one exercise of his boundless power. Because when he returns, he will bring all things in subjection to himself. And it's that power. It's galaxy uh, uh, subjecting power. The power that makes kings and presidents bow. The power that makes the demons tremble in submission. It's that power that is able to change you and me. And make us holy as he is holy. Jesus' power will secure your final holiness. 
And this contrast of glory between the immediate gratification of the enemies of the cross and the future glory of the citizens of heaven, it asks a question of us. What's the glory that you want? Because it's going to make a difference who you'll follow. You can indulge in your sinful desires. You can pat yourself on the back because you're so open-minded. You can proudly announce that you will not suppress who you are or what you truly feel. You can delight in the fact that people think you're fun and that you're having a good time. Friend, it's, you can have your glory now. Or you can have the glory that comes from Christ Jesus. But you can't have both. Here are two ways to live. Two different destinies. Two different deities. Two different glories. There's the earthly mindedness of those men and women who live for their own desires. And there's the heavenly mindedness of those who are citizens of heaven. And so this brings us to our application. Follow carefully. Follow carefully. Choose who you follow carefully and then follow who you choose carefully. Who are you following right now? Who are the influences who are shaping your thinking, who are shaping your desires, who are shaping your way of living? In our age, the question perhaps has even added significance from when it was asked in Paul's day in Philippi. Philippi was a pretty prominent city in its uh, day, uh, but uh, the influences that came in would come in only as people traveled uh, to this city. Today, of course, we've got more mobility than ever, and we've got the internet right in our pockets. We've got millions of people who we might listen to and read and watch or stream. Who are you keeping your eyes on? Whose life are you paying attention to? Who are the people that you spend time with and listen to? Now, I'm not saying that you should insulate yourself in a bubble and never talk to people who think and live differently than you do. As Christians, we are called to gladly go out and welcome people in so that they might join us as fellow sinners at the foot of Jesus' cross and find grace and forgiveness there. But if you're a Christian, if you've been made a citizen of heaven, you've got a new allegiance, a new destiny that should govern how you live here and now. Jesus cares about your holiness. Yes, he died so that one day you would be perfectly holy, but he wants you to be delivered from sin's power more and more now today. He wants you to experience more of his power to change you this week. And one of the means that he intends for that to happen in your life and in my life is through the imitation of godly examples. Paul in his letter has told us what we should be looking for in good guides to heaven. And following the right examples is of such great importance that I want to repeat for you five things that we should be looking for in those we're looking to imitate. Five things. We should be looking for those who give themselves to humble, selfless service of others. We should be looking for those who put no confidence in their own works to set them right with God. Instead, thirdly, we should be looking for those who trust in Christ alone for the righteousness which comes from God alone. We should be looking to those who are serious 
about their holiness, serious about knowing more of Jesus' power at work in them. And we should be looking for people who are longing for heaven. Now to find such guides for the Christian life, pursue opportunities for Christian community. Take the step of plugging into a small group or a Bible study. Move toward people for the sake of your holiness. Serve alongside other people. Invite others over to your home. Ask people out for coffee and ask them questions about their Christian walk. Go in search of examples. And then watch. Listen carefully. Ask lots of questions about living the Christian life. How do you do this? Why did you do that? What do you do if? Choose those who are following Christ faithfully and follow them carefully as they follow Christ. Now this is a passage concerned about who and how we follow because Jesus is concerned, friend, for your holiness. But let me give you a closing encouragement to those Christians who are discouraged about their holiness because I understand that many of us as we think about this, that's an intimidating thought. Holiness is hard. We're not sure we're maybe uh, making much progress, uh, if any, growing in holiness. And so discouragement might tempt you to put off any serious undertaking of this work of holiness. But I want us to notice the hope that this passage gives uh, to us because it shows not only does God supply the means and godly examples to help us grow in holiness, but he has secured the result. By grace, God has made you citizens of the kingdom of his son. And by faith, we're called to look to Jesus' promised return, knowing that not only is your holiness possible, but it's certain. In dependence upon God's spirit, knowing uh, uh, you can use every means that God has provided for your holiness, and that includes godly examples we can know that our effort is not in vain. Paul said at the beginning of this letter, he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is utterly confident in the future hope and the future reality that Christians will be made glorious. And so your holiness and my holiness are, are emblems of our citizenship. It's not in doubt. You can give yourself to the work of your holiness in the strength that God supplies. You can follow others as they follow Jesus, as they walk in the way of the cross, knowing that God will cause those efforts to prosper and that one day he will bring them to full and final completion. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the Christian life uh, is not a hobby. Uh, it's not something that's just interesting about us that we do in our spare time, uh, but you by grace have interrupted our sinful, hell-bound lives and you've seized us and you've made us kingdom, uh, citizens of the kingdom of your Son, citizens of the kingdom of light. And Lord, you've called us now to walk in a manner worthy of the grace that we have received. And we need your help to do this. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to more and more desire this. We pray that you would give us the grace of, of helping us to see the godly examples around us and that you would give us the grace to listen and to watch and to apply that we might walk faithfully 
after the Lord Jesus Christ as we await the day when the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised and Christ Jesus shall return and we shall be made like him because we shall see him as he is. Lord, we pray that you would hasten that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.